If you have a Bible with you, we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 this morning. So hear the word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, I pray now that you would... um, You would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're in this series in the Gospel of John, and the first chapter of John, we looked at you know all of this theology about Jesus, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Now we're actually getting into the ministry of Jesus, except today is an interesting um, deviation from that, and I'll explain in a minute, but first you have to ask, answer the question that I just put up on the screen. So the question is, is what do the following movies have in common? And I'm going to try and go slow here. So Forrest Gump, The Hangover, Batman Begins, The Greatest Showman, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Ratatouille, Daredevil, Dr. Zhivago, Pitch Perfect 3, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. As soon as I tell you, you're going to go, oh yeah. All of these movies and about 350 others use a technique called immediate race. And that is just a Latin term that just means in the middle of things. And what it means is that when the movie starts, it starts in the middle of things. It doesn't start at the beginning. It starts at some portion of the movie that you're, it's like, it's usually about two thirds of the way through. Like, so for example, I was just watching, um, I've been watching Ozark on Netflix. I can't recommend it, right? It's TVMA. And the fourth season opens with the, the main family getting in this horrible car accident. I mean, it just, they're, 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 no one could survive that car accident. And you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then it goes back three months earlier. So so does that make sense? So all of these movies begin in the middle. I watched a movie last night, Judy's out of town, so I could watch movies like this called Mother Android. It's about artificial intelligence taking over the world and a pregnant woman trying to escape the, the, the androids. But it opened up with this pregnant woman by the fire, and you're like, what is going on here? 
And then it goes back and gives you the rest of the story. And the reason it does that is because it wants you to have that picture in your mind of where this is all heading. And it wants you to say, how, could, how, how in the world, if we start out here, are they going to get to here, right? So it's, it's really a great technique for keeping, you, uh, keeping your attention. And so why am I bringing that up? It's because this morning we're looking at the cleansing of the temple. It's one of the most famous passages in the Gospels. And it's also one of the most controversial in this sense. You see, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the, where the temple cleansing is recorded is at the end of the Gospel. And it's recorded at the end, right after the triumphal entry of Jesus, right when Passion Week starts. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem for Passover, and then he goes and cleans out the temple, and the, the priests and the, the scribes decide that he needs to die, and then a few days later they kill him. Well, in John's Gospel, it's, it's all the way at the beginning. And people say, oh, look at that, the Bible's inconsistent. The, the, the one of, you know, did it happen at the beginning or did it happen at the end? Well, if they ever, people who say that, if they ever watched a movie, they would know. That all John is doing here, I believe, is starting using the technique of in medias race. He's, he's showing us something that's almost at the end, at the beginning, so that as we read the rest of the gospel, we'll have that in our mind. You see, the cleansing of the temple was the event that pushed the, the Jewish leadership over the edge that said, okay, this guy has to die. And so in the Gospel of John, remember John is not concerned primarily with chronology. We tend to, as modern readers, as modernistic readers, tend to read things, you know, point A, A B, C, D. John doesn't care about chronology. He's telling a story, and he wants us, as we read the rest of the Gospel of John, to have in our mind that the shadow of the cross is, is, covers every part of Jesus' ministry. That where this is all heading is ultimately to a conflict with the Jewish leadership that's going to end in his death. Did you notice the last thing it said here? In the text that I read this morning, it says, and after his resurrection... The disciples remembered all these things. In other words, it's plainly stated right at the beginning, this guy's going to die. And so as you're reading the Gospel of John, that is constantly at the front of your mind. That when you look at the Gospel of John, you can say, oh, I can see he's having all this other conflict with with the scribes and the Pharisees as well. So with all of that said, we're going to look at two things this morning. We're basically going to look at the cleansing of the temple, and we're going to look at the replacing of the temple. So look, let's look at verse 13. Um, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said, told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, so a couple of things are going on. So Jesus is heading up. Uh, this is probably, by the way, John has put it at the beginning. It's probably at the end of his ministry, though. They're going up to Jerusalem for the Passover, which Jesus went to Jerusalem a number of times. A faithful Jew would have gone to Jerusalem for Passover. And probably, and maybe as many as, as two million or two and a half million people would have come through Jerusalem during Passover on any given year. Now, mind you, that sounds like it maybe is not that much until you consider in the ancient Near East, the cities weren't that big, even the major cities. So Jerusalem would have been sort of shoulder-to-shoulder people. 
And Jesus and his disciples have gone there for the Passover. And you remember Passover was celebrating when Israel was delivered from Egypt and God put a plague on the firstborn sons and he told Israel, everyone take a lamb, the Passover, and put the blood over your door. And when I come through on the night of judgment, I will pass over the house that has the, the blood on it. And in the confusion of, of the killing of the firstborn, Israel was released from Egypt, and they would celebrate that every single year with the feast of the Passover. That's why they are all there. Now, and, and also to be fair, the temple at this point, Jesus comes and he goes to the temple like any worshiper would do, and he just finds it to, to be just mayhem. He, he finds it to be like a farmer's market. He finds it to, to be just crazy, and he gets a little bit upset. Now, to be fair, notice the things that were mentioned there, the sheep and the oxen and the pigeons and, and the money changers. To be fair, all those things were needed. People coming at from, from, from a, a long way away couldn't be expected maybe to bring an oxen with them or to bring even birds with them. So they, they, it, it was a service provided for them so that when they got to Jerusalem, they could actually buy an animal to sacrifice. And they needed money changers because the temple tax, they all had to pay a temple tax. And that was paid in a, in a currency called Tyrian, which is silver. And they had currency from all over the known world. And so you needed money changers there to be able to convert the currency for them. So to be fair, all these things were needed. Jesus isn't upset with people who are providing a service for other people. He is upset with where they are providing that service. They are providing that service actually within the temple. You see, the temple would have had the Holy of Holies and then the, the, the court for Israel, which meant men, and then the court of women, and then the court of the Gentiles. And they, they were in the court of the Gentiles. What we tend to forget is just because it was the court of the Gentiles, it was still holy. It was still sacred. I mean, it wasn't the Holy of Holies, but it was part of the temple because if you remember from the very beginning, the whole point of the temple was to draw the nations in. And the very place where the nations were to be drawn in had now become this sort of crazy farmer's market bazaar, and they had creeped in, and Jesus is upset about that. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you were a Gentile, you're a non-Jewish person, and you feel like some compulsion to, to consider the God of Israel, right? Maybe you met some Jewish friends, and they've talked to you about the God of Israel, and you're thinking, man, I, this is Passover. This is like visiting church on Easter, if you will, right? And so the Gentiles are going to show up, and when they show up to see about Israel's God, what do they find? Corruption. <laughs> And, and people barking at them, and people trying to sell them things, and it was just crazy. It would be as if, imagine we were trying to have a worship service in here, and at the very same time, in our narthex, or lobby, for those of you not familiar with the word narthex, there was a huge farmer's market going on. I mean, a huge farm, with animals, and an, animals leaving manure all over the floors, and people yelling, and people trying to sell stuff, and we're in here trying to be quiet, right? Some of you get upset when people, like, talk when, before worship starts. Imagine if that was going on. Jesus says, no, it's not going to go on anymore. You see, he's going to stop it. He makes a whip of cords. Look at 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He drives out the merchants. Now, this is often used as a, as a proof text for righteous anger. 
And I think Jesus was angry here. I just don't know that it's, that it's a proof text for righteous anger. He, he does get angry, I think, and he does make a whip of cords, right? And he drives people out. He gets, he gets physical. He doesn't necessarily get violent, but he gets physical. And most people would, would be like, whoa, what's going on here? They, you don't expect that out of, out of a religious man, a, a pastor, if you will, a rabbi. I remember sitting in my office one time and someone was, was saying some things that were pretty like inflammatory. And she said, pastor, it looks like you're getting angry. And I said, you are an amazing judge of character. And, 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 and the obvious, I am getting angry, right? I'm a human being. Jesus was human, but Jesus also had something else. He had zeal. He had passion. You see, Jesus was, had passion for his father's house. He had passion for his father. He had passion for his mission. All of that translates into zeal. Notice what it says. It says, and these things, he, he told, the, I love that he told those who, who sold the pigeons. He didn't tell the other people, like these dirty pigeons, get them out of here. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, notice it says zeal and not anger. And also notice, at, what, what did Jesus hope to accomplish here as he was doing this? That basically from our perspective, it, it seems foolish. In other words, so Jesus has zeal, he has passion for his father's house, and he makes his whip, and he drives everyone out. And from, from our perspective, at least my perspective, it seems foolish, because what's going to happen as soon as Jesus leaves? It doesn't, you don't get the sense that people had a lot of conviction here. You had a sense that maybe they were surprised, and maybe he knocked them out of the way. But as soon as he leaves, they're just going to set up their tables and start selling again. Because the, the problem here isn't the, the corruption of the temple primarily. The biggest problem is the corruption of the human hearts behind all the stuff that's going on in the temple. Right? The, 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 unless you deal with the corruption of the human heart, cleansing the temple is just really not going to do anything. It's a waste of time. Now, of course, we know that for Jesus, he didn't think he was wasting his time. There was something else going on here. And what's interesting is I think it has to do with that, the verse that John quotes. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, if you and I were writing that or saying that, or if I just said, what do you think comes next? Zeal for your house will consume me. He's quoting a psalm. So the next thing you would expect, so therefore I drove out the, the, those who are worshiping incorrectly. Therefore I drove out the money changers. Therefore I drove out those who mocked our God. It doesn't say that. In Psalm 69:9, it says this. It says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Isn't that an odd thing to say? Zeal for your house consumes me, and the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen on me. In other words, uh, by cleansing the temple, Jesus both points to, but he also provokes what, what the answer is. He provokes what will make us right with God. And what will make us right with God is Jesus bearing our reproach. It's Jesus taking on our sin. In other words, Jesus is angry at what's going on here, but his zeal drives him to clear out the temple because what that does is it's going to, it points to what he's going to do with our hearts, but also it provokes people to kill him. In other words, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. 
No, do, do, do you think he, would, he didn't expect that he would go into the temple and cause a huge ruckus and people wouldn't get upset with him? He's actually provoking the very thing that needs to happen. If, if zeal for his house is going to consume him and he is going to bear a reproach, then so be it. And so basically the religious establishment at this point, they start saying, who does this guy think he is? And by what authority does do you do these things? And the answer that Jesus is ultimately going to give them, and, or at least through John, is that I am the temple. In other words, by what authority do you do these things in the temple? I am the temple. That, that I am the one who you, you need to, to know to have a relationship with God. So Jesus not only cleanses the temple, but he replaces it. And that leads to the next point. Notice in um, verse 18, it says, So the Jews said to him, By what sign... What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now what's interesting in verse 18 is, did you notice what the Jews didn't say? And by the way, I've said this before, in the Gospel of John, when he says the Jews, he doesn't mean every Jew, he means Jewish leadership. It's a technical term. But when John said, what did the Jews here not say? Well, they didn't, basically they don't accuse him of breaking any law. They don't accuse him of defiling the temple. They don't say, how dare you do this? How dare you defy the temple? How dare you defy the orders of Annas the high priest who authorized all this stuff? There would have been a contingent of Roman soldiers somewhere near who they could have just called upon who would have gotten Jesus and his disciples and just swept them right out. Why don't they do that? Why don't, why don't they, they say, how dare you? They don't say that at all. On the other hand, what they don't say is they don't, they, they don't agree with him or they, they don't acknowledge any wrongdoing. They don't say, wow, you're right. We've really let this place go to hell. We've really let this thing get out of control. These people need animals. These people get out of here. And they start helping. They don't say that either. Instead, what they do say is basically, who do you think you are? By what sign can you prove your authority? In, in other words, they're sort of, they wonder if he actually is who he says he is. And if this is toward the end of his ministry, everyone knows who this guy has been saying that he is. And everyone knows he's been performing miracles. And everyone knows what's going on. And so they basically say, what sign are you going to show us? They say this pretty often in the New Testament. And what does Jesus most often say to them in return? No sign shall be given. He doesn't do that this time. And it's actually pretty funny. Notice what he says to them. They say, what sign will you give us? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now what's implicit there, what Jesus is using is third person. In other words, he's saying, you destroy the temple, you guys, and I'll raise it up in three days. That's a pretty big sign, wouldn't you say? You destroy it, I'll raise it up. In other words, what Jesus does is he puts the ball completely in their court. You want a sign from me? Okay, destroy the temple. Now, why would that infuriate them? Which it, it did infuriate them. It infuriated them because that, that meant the only way they could know for sure that Jesus was the Messiah is they would have to act by faith. They would have actually had to do something. They would have had to say, okay, I'm going to destroy the temple. Let's see what he does. Do they do, of course they don't do that. 
In other words, they had to, they had to believe before they could see, and what is what Jesus is saying to them. If you want to see who I am, you've got to believe me. And if you want to believe me, destroy this temple and watch what happens. And of course, they don't do that. Instead of acting upon his challenge, they just dismiss it. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, what's interesting is when they say it's taken 46 years to build this temple, the temple wasn't even finished yet. Remember, it was being rebuilt after being, being destroyed before. It, it wouldn't be finished for almost another 20 years. But what, has, what they did have had taken 46 years. And they're just incredulous. They, they dismiss Jesus outright. Now, what's interesting, though, is John reminds us that what they didn't accomplish by faith, they accomplished through lies and corruption. Right? They, they would actually do their part in providing the sign. They would actually destroy the temple. And, and this scene actually plays, plays pretty prominently in it. In, in other words, let me read you what Mark says. In Mark's Gospel, in chapter 11, after Jesus cleanses the temple there, it says in verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard of it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. And because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So, in other words, in Mark's gospel, we read that when this happened, they went out and started to plot the death of Jesus. And through their corruption and through their lies, they did it. And at his trial, it's interesting, again, in Mark chapter 14, verse 57, it says this, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even this, their testimony, did not agree. In other words, by falsely accusing him and by crucifying him, they were playing their part in this sign that Jesus said that he would give them. They had no idea. But the only way they could have known that is if they had known that Jesus was the temple. That Jesus was the very place where... where humanity could have a relationship with God, that Jesus was the place where they would meet with God. And so basically the disciples, when he rose from the dead, the disciples remembered this. Look at verse 22. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So just bring it to a close. Basically, this, Jesus is the final sacrifice. Jesus is the, is the final priest. But Jesus is even the final temple. Jesus is basically the place where humanity and God can interface, right? That was the whole purpose of the temple. That was where, where people could go and enter into the presence of God. And now, if you want to enter into the presence of God, we do that through the person and work of Jesus, right? Through, through his death, he accomplished reconciliation. And through his resurrection, he enabled relationship. That, that now when we put our faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. That he actually becomes his chief cornerstone. We actually begin to become part of this temple. He is the place where we encounter God. Now let me ask you this. Do you have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus? Do you? Or are you like Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Remember The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? 
Basically, these four children go through, through a wardrobe, which is what they call a closet in England, right? They go through a wardrobe, and they go to this fantastical land called Narnia, and it is ruled at the time by the White Witch, right, who is evil. And one of the four children, Edmund, almost immediately falls under her spell. He immediately falls. And later in the, the story, the children are in, in Narnia, and they're trying to figure things out, and they meet a talking beaver. Most of the animals can talk in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver begins to explain to them what's going on in Narnia, and he mentions the name of Aslan. And that's what I wanted to bring. When he mentions the name of Aslan, all the children feel something different. Right? So there's four children. I'll name them Peter, the oldest. Peter felt strangely brave and courageous. Susan, second born, she felt as if she were hearing the most beautiful music in the world. Lucy felt like a child on the day school is out on summer vacation. Edmund felt horrible and strangely uncomfortable. Now, when, when you consider Jesus, when you consider the name of Jesus, when you consider a relationship, which of those do you feel like? I think most of us, even those of us who have been Christians for a long time, often feel like Edmund. We feel strangely uncomfortable. We feel horrible. Now, here's the, the good news. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. It shouldn't be this way, right? Because in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, when he goes to the, to the stone table, like Jesus goes to the cross and he is sacrificed and he raises from the dead, not only is Edmund forgiven, but Edmund is made free. For those of us who have trusted Jesus, we are not only forgiven, but we also are free. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would... Um, you would help us to understand what Jesus has done here in the, in the cleansing of the temple, that he has actually provoked the very thing that would kill him, that he might be crucified on our behalf in order to be raised on our behalf, in order that we might be free to be in relationship with him. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen.